Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Reagan Patterson, who recently completed a fellowship as a Transportation Equity Research Fellow at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation and is an incoming Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at UCLA. In today's episode, Reagan will help us understand how the U.S. transportation system leads to environmental injustices and inequitable access to mobility services. We'll talk about the history of how this came to be, policy solutions that are on the table, and how cities, states, and the federal government can address these issues more comprehensively in the future. Stay with us. All right, Dr. Reagan Patterson, newly with the University of California at Los Angeles. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you so much. Happy to be here today. So Reagan, we're going to talk about your work on uh, the transportation sector and how transportation systems are or are not equitable uh, for, uh, for, for all sorts of different people in the United States. Uh, but we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on energy and environmental issues in the first place, either as a young person or later in life. So what drew you into this field? Yeah. Um... So with that question, it takes me back to being in the garden with my grandma. And so that was really my first experience, really connecting to the earth, um, helping her tend to her garden. And so this really, for me, instilled care for the earth, care for environment. And later this practice translated into things like recycling and other kinds of ways that I could be environmentally friendly in my daily life and daily practice. And so then, funny enough, when it came time to pick a major, I was sitting at my computer and I turned to my mom and I was like, mom, what should I major in? And she was like, well, you like math and physics. Why not engineering? But you had to select a subfield. And I turned right back to my mom and asked, (laughs) which which engineering field should I select? And she was like, well, you like to recycle. Why not environments engineering? And so that was literally um, the beginning of the rest of my career. So um, that's really how I became interested and got started getting involved in environmental work. Wow, that's so that's so interesting. Um, I think if my parents had given me suggestions about what my major should have been, I would have taken exactly the opposite of whatever it was <laughs> they told me. Um, but maybe I should have listened to them. Who knows? <laughs> and where did you grow up? Where was your grandma's uh, garden? So in Maryland, and so um, grew up in Potomac, Maryland. Yep. Yeah, great. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about um, sort of equity issues related to transportation today. And we've talked on this show before about environmental justice issues, and we've focused largely on kind of industrial facilities, waste facilities, things like that. We haven't talked a lot about transportation. So can you give us some historical background on how, you know, actions in the past have resulted in a transportation network in the United States that, uh, you know, has led to an unequal burden of exposure uh, to pollution, particularly for low-income communities and communities of color? Yes. So one major factor that I point to are are our freeways and freeway construction. And so historically following the Federal Highway Act, freeway construction and urban renewal programs really inequitably impacted poor communities of color um, and predominantly Black communities. And so because of freeway construction, you had the demolition and of Black neighborhoods and other communities of color. You had the displacement as well as the destruction of local economies. So it really devastated entire communities. 
And this happened all over the nation. And so you had freeway placement, which really promoted segregation. And then you had that in combination with race-based planning practices, such as redlining and racially restrictive covenants, which prevented movement out of environmentally burdened neighborhoods. And so this has um, really significant implications for disproportionate exposures to traffic-related air pollution. Um, and now when you look at roadway density and proximity to roadways, there's the highest density in non-white and low-income communities, which leads to um, disproportionate exposures and then consequently um, disparate health impacts. So a lot of this really can be traced to freeways and roadway placement um, in combination with discriminatory housing policies. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Detroit is right down the road. And there are so many examples of this um, in Detroit. Are there other cities that come to mind as sort of poster children of how um, the siting of freeways has been applied, you know, in a uh, disproportionate and overly burdensome way? Yeah, so you named Detroit um, with the I-75, I-375. You have Atlanta, um, L.A., literally every urban um, core is really provides examples of this phenomenon happening. Interesting. So when you think about policy options to address this problem today, you know, given the state of the infrastructure as it currently exists, what are some of the most promising options that come to mind, whether they are at the local, state, or federal levels? Yes. Yeah, so in terms of policies, um, really increased funding and planning for multimodal transportation with a particular focus on public transit. Um, at the federal level, we see recently the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, also known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, substantially increased public transit funding to help expand it. Um, and so really more frequent, rely anything that helps encourage or fund more frequent, reliable, and accessible service to help reduce our automobile dependency and our reliance on cars is a promising policy, in my opinion. And so um, in terms of multimodal beyond public transit, we're seeing a lot of local investment in bus lanes and bike lanes. And again, this helps deprioritize using roads for cars, um, but really encouraging us to get out of our cars um, to make them more walkable, bikeable, um, and to increase public transit use. Yeah. Yeah, that all makes sense. And what about the role that electric vehicles could play here? Obviously, they're still, you know, powered by electricity, which may be coming from a fossil fired power plant, which has its own environmental implications. You know, to, to what extent do you think EVs can help because they have, you know, zero tailpipe emissions? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so when we talk about um, earlier mentioning the proximity to roadways, so if we want to have an intervention that improves um, or reduces exposure to the tailpipe emissions or transportation emissions, electric vehicles are definitely um, a way to do that. And so that transition to zero tailpipe emission vehicles and then having that um, in parallel to the transition to clean energy to ensure that we do have um, the cleanest forms and uh, across the entire life cycle to reduce the um, the transportation emissions and exposure. So absolutely. 
Yeah. One other question that comes to mind with electric vehicles is uh, is their weight. So electric vehicles are you know often heavier than their uh, internal combustion counterparts because of the weight of the batteries. And I know some of your work has documented sort of unequal exposure to traffic accidents within urban communities. So is that something that you would worry about uh, in terms of EV deployments, potential exacerbation of you know uh, health impacts of, of traffic accidents? Absolutely. And so the battery themselves do weigh and add to or contribute to the increased um, weight, as you mentioned, of EVs um, in comparison to uh, internal combustion vehicles of the same size. And so something of concern is particularly from a gendered perspective, this comes up because the U.S. actually does have the shift towards wanting trucks and SUVs. Um, And then there's Um, actually gender implications of this, of who's driving the small cars and the big cars. And so when you're looking at vehicles and accident potential, um, women are actually, um, there's significant gender implications of that, of who's driving the big cars. And then so who is more likely to have more health consequential accidents when they happen. And so that is one thing that I, um, I have looked at. And there was a great report done with the Women's Environment and Development Organization that mentions that. Um, And so as we shift um, toward the trend shift towards these larger vehicles. Um, again, the concern around traffic fatalities. And we did see during COVID, there was a great report done by um, Smart Growth America showing that traffic fatalities actually increased during COVID. And there were racial disparities in that. And something that contributes again is the um, increased likelihood of having roadways that encourage um, fast driving through communities of color. And so um, that is another issue of concern. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just one more follow up on this before we move to our next subject, which is you mentioned the gender disparity is the idea there that it's typically men that drive the like 10 foot tall trucks and and women that tend to drive smaller cars? Yes. And so um, there are uh, uh, gender differences in car selection. And so that's exactly right. Yeah, every time I see one of those trucks around town, it's always a dude behind the wheel. <laughs> uh, so, so let's talk about something else now, which is um, you know related issue, uh, not so much issues of pollution and exposure to accidents, but more about access to mobility, affordable and clean mobility. What types of challenges do Black households face with regard to access to reliable, clean mobility? Yeah, so to start, um, just having access to an automobile. And so um, it's something around 20% of Black households don't have access to a car at all, which is the highest percentage among all races and ethnicities. And so when you have an automobile-dominated transportation system, this definitely hinders mobility. Um, and so then, on the other hand, when you look at public transit, a large proportion of, of riders, um, African-Americans, Black folks are actually overrepresented in public transit with almost one in four public transit riders being African-American. However, there's been significant underinvestment, right, in public transit, particularly buses. And so this contributes to a lack of access to reliable and accessible and frequent service. Um, And then on top of that, I guess I'll add that you add the phenomenons of gentrification, rising housing costs, and lack of affordable housing for all incomes which is pushing Black folks and other communities of color out of cities to areas with even fewer mobility options. And so from a car side and a public transit side, um, there are some 
um, challenges in terms of mobility. Yeah. And there's health implications of this too, right? If I think about the COVID era and, you know, who was taking public transportation and who had access to their own vehicle, I imagine COVID would have exacerbated those types of inequalities. Yes. Yeah, so what, when we think of COVID, one of the main concerns was access to healthcare facilities and getting to healthcare facilities for testing as well as for vaccination. And so because of um, a lack of reliable mobility options, that was a huge concern. And so government started stepping in on the federal level. There were partnerships for like free Lyft rides or free Uber rides to go get um, vaccines because of this recognition that due to a lack of access um, to transportation, it was hindering ability to receive testing or to receive treatment. Yeah. That's interesting. And I was also thinking about like exposure to the virus itself, right? If it's a disproportionate share of black riders on public transportation, uh, presumably, you know, public transportation is a riskier place to be from a COVID perspective than in, in a private vehicle. Uh, yes. Yeah. So in terms of that, we see that, um, for example, with workers and so bus drivers, um, one concern was for the health of the actual drivers um, and other um, public transit employees. So, yes, that was definitely a concern. Um, and that's just one of the concerns for that. Yes. Yeah. So um, to, to jump again to the policy piece of this, I know there are you know a, a million nuances here that we're glossing over. But can you talk a little bit about some of the policy options that you see as particularly promising that can you know address this problem of lack of mobility? Yes, so I'll bring this back and as I'm sure will become very apparent, um, really any policy that increases, expands or complements public transit. Um, and so there's been an increase in funding for transit and other non-auto modes, such as I mentioned before, um, biking and, and bike lanes. But most of our infrastructure funding still does go to roadways, including for highway construction and expansion, which again has implications for disproportionate exposures. And so I think we really need a paradigm shift in our funding allocation. Um, and so it's great to have programs, you brought up electric vehicles, it's great to have this transition to electric vehicles in terms of um, exposure also. However, I think making sure that public transit is getting at least equal funding to that of our roadway infrastructure. Yeah. And you've also done some work on micro mobility, you know, small vehicles like scooters or, um, you know, bicycle shares or things like that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, access to micro mobility in its current form and how it might be uh, expanded? Yeah, so there's been a lot of um, growth of micro mobility, scooter share, bike share. Um, and so a lot of this work has been um, tackling this issue of access and equity in terms of access um, and increased mobility. And so we're seeing um, things such as uh, being able to use these um, with a public transit card, for instance, where your public transit may allow you to have one free hour, um, some services doing that, 
or just allowing people to get around um, in a way that they could not otherwise and making sure that they are deployed equitably in neighborhoods, uh, whether neighborhoods that are diverse by ethnicity or socioeconomic status. So making sure that the deployment is is equitable across neighborhoods. And so we're seeing an increase in that as well. Um, and again, a co-location or, or a complementing of public transit. For instance, if you look on your Lyft app now, you can see various kinds of modes. You can get your scooter. You can see when the public transit's coming. You can see when your Lyft ride is coming. And so making sure that all of these options are available to people. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I was also thinking about sort of access to modern banking services, right? For a lot of these things, you need to have a, a credit card, which, you know, which might not be available to everybody. Absolutely. And so that is one issue of concern. And so um, I brought up how a lot of services are trying to address this because, as you mentioned, banking cards and, for instance, Black people, a high proportion, don't have access to banking, are um, underbanked or unbanked. And so um, coming up with innovative solutions to ensure that you don't need a card. And so um, that could be making sure that your public transit card can can provide access or are there other ways in which you can buy this service? And so I did write about potential opportunities if a local convenience store provided credit to then use. And so fortunately, there's examples of uh, of scooters, for instance, and bike share programs that are starting to really do this to address equity, but making sure that access for the unbanked and underbanked is is definitely a priority in terms of the equity aspect. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, um, let's step back for a moment and kind of, uh, I'd like to ask you a, a big picture question, which, which comes up a lot in conversations about equity, uh, and pollution exposure, which is about sort of policy mechanisms that we can use to address these issues, whether we're focused on environmental or energy goals or access to mobility or anything else. Uh, oftentimes when people talk about environmental justice issues, there, um, there's sometimes a tension between like regulatory based approaches, uh, versus uh, market based approaches like uh, carbon pricing or other pollution pricing mechanisms. Um, I'm wondering in the context of mobility and, uh, you know, exposure to air pollution related to transportation, can these two policy options be complementary or do you see one approach as typically preferable to another? Yes. So I will definitely say for me, one, I find preferable over the other, which is traditional regulation. Um, so I oppose market-based policies from an um, environmental justice perspective. And so among other reasons, um, market-based policies don't guarantee localized emission reductions. Um, and particularly when they don't have specific emission reduction targets in overburdened communities. Um, and so there was a recent study that came out by um, Cushing et al. And it actually found that California's cap and trade program, which a lot of um, policymakers look to as an example, it actually worsened the pollution burden in environmental justice communities. And then another issue of concern is where are the funds from these market-based policies going to? Are they going to the environmental justice communities and solutions? Or are they going to more pollution sources, such as using transportation um, market-based policies to fund more roadways, right? And so that's another issue of concern. And so in terms of advocating or my support for traditional regulation, there's a quote by Martin Luther King Jr., which said, 
quote, it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. And he continues, quote, there's a need for strong regulation constantly to grapple with the problems we face. And so I'm of the opinion our, our regulations and legislation might not be perfect. And so, but it's really time for strong and bold legislation in order to adequately um, address environmental justice issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I wonder if there is, you know, some role for complementarity here where, I mean, you mentioned that California's cap and trade program doesn't have specific targets for overburdened communities. Um, but you could imagine building that into a cap and trade system, right? If you just kind of added some additional elements to it. Yeah. So if there were specific emission reduction targets in environmental justice communities, then that would be a start. Um, however, from an environmental justice kind of foundational background, the market contributed to um, environmental injustice. And so looking to the market to fix it is um, is of concern. And so what kind of bold new ways can we reimagine? And then oftentimes um, in terms of pricing, just in terms of equity in pricing um, is another concern. And so there might be a way, and I know that a lot of cities are grappling with how do you infuse equity into market-based approaches. Um, however, Thus far, um, I don't think we can really point to an example of a market-based solution that was able to adequately address environmental justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that good points. And um, you know, hopefully, one of the things that we'll be able to do a better job of in the future, and by we, I mean you know, folks who work mostly from an economic perspective on policy issues, is just like having more conversations with people uh, who you know, have legitimate critiques of, of market-based programs and, and trying to use the strengths of market-based programs uh, while also addressing the equity concerns that legitimately come up when uh, when a market-based program does not sort of explicitly address them. So um, I'd love to ask you now about um, any examples that might come to mind of a, a community or a state or any other kind of geography uh, that you would point to as having a particularly interesting or innovative approach to addressing the inequities that we've been talking about today in the transportation system, uh, whether uh, it relates to mobility or pollution exposure or any other relevant issues. Are there a couple examples that come to mind? Yeah, um, there's a few that come to mind. Um, In terms of mobility, something that I'd like to point to is um, how Boston's recently elected Mayor Wu expanded um, Boston's fare free transit pilot program. And so in terms of access um, and equitable access, it gets at that. And then it also gets that you um, brought up COVID. And so it also gets at the fact that um, the fact which COVID helped visibilize, um, which is that transit is essential for those who keep our cities running. And so other cities are also experimenting with similar fare-free transit programs. And so that to me is a really innovative approach. Um, Can we treat public transit as a public good um, and therefore have it free for everyone? And then in terms of pollution, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act actually invests a billion dollars to reconnect communities. Um, And so to really redress the inequities of it, um, which also helps address the pollution associated with it. Um, The idea of freeway teardown projects, freeway removal projects to reconnect communities. And several states actually have shovel-ready projects that they're hoping to be awarded funding for. Um, An example is, you brought up Detroit, so I'm excited to 
Uh, point two, Detroit, there's um, the I-375 improvement project actually in Detroit, where the Michigan Department of Transportation is planning to replace that sunken highway with a street level boulevard that's to be lined with sidewalks and bike lanes. Um, and so federal funding will cover a majority of those project costs. And so that's actually an example of using this to reconnect communities. And then lastly, I'll point to one because I am moving back to California. So I, if I can point back to California. And so um, in California, Assemblymember Garcia recently introduced AB 1778, which would actually prohibit the state from funding or permitting freeway expansions in environmental justice communities. And so I point to those all three, which are um, varying approaches, but all um, very exciting in the way in which cities and states and the federal government um, are trying to address both mobility and um, exposure. Yeah, those are fascinating examples. And yeah, the idea of reconnecting community is such an interesting one. I'm curious about how like scalable you think that approach can be either today or in the years ahead. Um, you know, just like the volumes of traffic on some of those freeways are, are so great. Um, I guess, you know, community connection would need to be combined with more public transportation, right, to uh, enable people to get where they need to go. Um, yeah, can you just talk about the potential future for reconnecting communities and um, yeah, replacing some of these freeways with more sustainable uh, transportation networks? Absolutely. And so um, there definitely needs to be increased um, funding for public transit, um, to make sure that people can transition from the car into other transportation modes. However, there's great examples of how um, how cities have already done this. So when you look at San Francisco, um, if you've enjoyed walking along the Embarcadero, that actually used to be a um, double-decker freeway. And so after the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, um, it was torn down and it was torn down without a replacement. And you see that traffic, I mean, traffic is always kind of a lot in San Francisco regardless, but there was not an increase in traffic due to um, the tearing down of this of the Embarcadero Freeway to then now create the nice Embarcadero that people enjoy walking and biking along and just sitting. And so that's an example of, uh, of what can be done. Um, other communities have rerouted freeways, um, capped freeways, um, but the real goal is to remove. And then again, what are the question gets at innovative approaches? How can we then um, transition people away from this reliance um, is really the goal to imagine this new transportation system. And so the IIJA gives $1 billion in funding. The original goal was $20 billion. Um, And so if it could get to that level of funding, communities already across the country actually have visions for this. There's um, a more recent example in Syracuse. They are already planning to tear down, I believe it's the I-81. And so we already are seeing examples of communities that um, and cities that are actually ready and excited about doing this. Um, and so to me, it speaks to what can be in the possibilities and they're leading with community-led visions of how to replace that infrastructure. Um, with green space and what can that green space be reimagined into. And so I think there are great examples of what can happen and how it's been able to happen without um, causing traffic disruption. Right. 
Yeah, well, that's really exciting, really kind of inspiring visions um, to think about for the future. And, and hopefully we'll be seeing more of them uh, in the years ahead. Uh, well, Reagan Patterson from UCLA, this has been really fascinating. I've learned a ton and I'm sure our listeners have too. And, and we'd love to close it out now with the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard um, that you think is really great uh, and you think our listeners would enjoy. So uh, what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Yeah, so I guess in terms of what I've recently watched, um, I do want to share that I'm the co-founder of Black and Environment, which aims to build community for Black people in environmental spaces. And we just completed our Black and Environ Week, which corresponds with Earth Week and is a week of programming. And this year we had a really cool opportunity to screen this short film um, called Black Like Plastic. Um, which discusses the Black experience in the outdoors. And that event was followed by a Q&A with the producers and the cast. And so I do definitely recommend watching that short film upon its release. Again, being from California, um, it was created by a group in California. Um, but it really is a great discussion around that Black experience um, in the outdoors and in environmental work. And so I would recommend watching that um, again upon its release. That sounds really fascinating. We will uh, make sure to have any uh, relevant links we can dig up uh, in our show notes so that folks can can check that stuff out, uh, as well as some of the other topics we've discussed today. So one more time, uh, Reagan Patterson from UCLA, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.